Hey loves, this is Kate, the founder of Loam, and I am especially excited for this episode today. For those of you who are new to our community, Loam Listen is an expression of our commitment to creating regenerative media and embodied experiences in support of climate adaptation and cultural reimagination. Today, I'm talking to Joshua Khan Russell and BJ Star of the Wildfire Project. In the face of planetary crisis, the Wildfire Project is passionate about cultivating holistic, interdependent, and thriving movements that can transform the material and spiritual conditions of our world. Through open-hearted facilitation, Wildfire partners with grassroots organizations to create programs, curriculums, and retreats shaped by six elements. Thriving groups, compelling visions of freedom, building power across difference, study and practice, transformative strategies, and cultivating spirit and faith. It's this last element that we're going to explore today, given how important infusing our environmental and social work with a sense of spirit is to the Loam community. Joshua and BJ, thank you so much for making the time to connect today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. As you share on your site, Wildfire is an intervention on the dominant culture of activism. And what moved me so much when I first learned about Wildfire is how you all are seeking to create a culture shift by providing a supportive space for activists to inhabit contradictions, work through conflict, and cultivate rituals, all practices that aren't always nurtured within mainstream activism. Can you share some of your journey through movement spaces that brought each of you to this work? Sure, I'll kick it off. Um, I'll I'll start actually. You know, I from as long as I can remember, I oriented myself as an activist. When I was about thirteen years old, uh, I was growing up in Connecticut in a suburb where there was a lot of wealth right next to a lot of poverty, um, and that created conditions that were pretty ripe for a lot of neo-Nazi youth recruitment. So in the late 90s, I knew a lot of kids that were getting recruited into these neo-Nazi subcultures, basically. Uh, And I very quickly joined an organization uh, that was organized around trying to confront them. And it was a very polarized, very confrontational style of activism. And it pulled me into an orientation of um, thinking about race, racism, and white supremacy all of the time, and um, really set me on a pathway of um, over throughout high school and then into college, learning how to organize social movements. Um, By the time I got to college, George W. Bush was dropping bombs on Iraq, and I got involved in a lot of mass civil disobedience type struggles. So we would do things like you know, shut down our university and, you know, march into Boston and shut down Boston with other students. And a lot of my orientation was trying to blend different, um, what we call sectors, but like issue areas. So um, working at the intersection of racial justice and climate change and war. Um, And I got the benefit of learning how to be an activist from very dedicated people Uh, from the labor movement in particular, uh, through learning to support undocumented workers at my college who were trying to organize for health benefits and learning from really an older generation from the 1960s. 
But the style of activism that I came into kept me sprinting. Um, I learned at a pretty young age that, you know, what I was taught was that as a white man being born into a patriarchal society and a white supremacist society, that just by existing as a default, I was causing harm. And that in order to be a good person uh, and repair that harm, I had to be doing good work. And what that taught me was that um, it taught me to define myself not based on who I am, but on what I do. So I was really focused on what I on on doing a lot, <laughs> and I continued to sprint uh, without an inherent sense of self worth. In fact, it was I derived my self worth from doing big work to scale. So shutting down coal fired power plants or stopping pipelines and things like that. And as I was sprinting. Uh, I learned to not pay attention to my body and I learned to become uh, constantly self-policing with learning the right way to be an activist because uh, that's how I thought I could be, I, I could have value. And in that self-policing, I really lost myself. And um, I'm not just talking about the typical cycles of burnout that many activists go through, but I, I also had... Um, a number of chronic autoimmune disorders and other kinds of illnesses that I was disassociating from. Um, I lost access to my body's wisdom and my heart's wisdom. I lost access to my spirit's wisdom and I hit a wall. Uh, and I had had chronic Lyme disease for at that point about seven years, though most of that I was unaware of it. Um, and I was experiencing layers of trauma, navigating the medical industrial complex, trying to resolve my illness in a way that was doing anything but looking inside. <laughs> and meanwhile, I was also navigating a level of existential crisis, having worked on climate change for so long, uh, particularly spending a lot of time at the United Nations, hanging out with you know, climate scientists in their silent despair, doing a lot of solidarity work with indigenous peoples who were um, experiencing the routine genocide of colonization and um, really feeling like the strategies that our movements were picking were not to scale with the crisis. And I didn't have any spiritual path with which to anchor myself. I didn't have any orientation to uh, this work beyond what my little version of activism taught me, which was that my uh, compass could be tuned by my analysis. So I was very stuck in my head all the time. And eventually I became bedridden uh, and I was stuck in bed for three years and had basically given up. Um, you know, once I stopped, because I, I defined myself based on what I do, once I stopped being able to do anything, I didn't know who I was anymore. And I also, you know, was experiencing literal dementia as well. And it wasn't until I got called into um, a really ceremony by, by friends who are reconnecting to the land, uh, reconnecting to themselves, reconnecting to their ancestral traditions, that I found a pathway for healing. And when I came out of that, um, that's when I really leaned into this, this uh, training organization, this movement vehicle, the Wildfire Project, which is uh, really geared towards shifting those conditions that, for me, got, got me so sick. Um, and the Wildfire Project formed in 2013, shortly after the end of Occupy Wall Street, when a number of organizers got together and were assessing some of the limitations of the activist left and came to the conclusion that, in many ways, the culture 
the culture of activism itself is one of our biggest barriers and that activists need a little bit more infrastructure and that a lot of the training organizations that we knew were not necessarily orienting folks to be able to navigate the level of chronic crisis that our, our people are going through. And um, so we built an organization that was focused on long-term accompaniment with grassroots groups uh, that pairs skills training with political education, with healing and interpersonal transformation to support grassroots groups to shift their culture out of some of the ways that activism can feel so toxic into um, into a more thriving culture that that leans on those elements that you you mentioned in your your beautiful introduction. So that's a little bit of why I'm in wildfire. Um, but I'll pause there because I know I've been I've been going on and on and maybe let BJ jump in. Thank you for that intro, Joshua. I learn more about you each time I get to hear you share your story. And um, it's an incredible story to me. And I'm just deeply grateful that you're in my life. Um, I had a very, a very different experience coming to Wildfire, um, though I definitely wished that I had access to organizing when I was younger. I uh, had more access to rebellion. So as a young person, I, I grew up here in Seattle, Washington, where I'm tuning in from right now. And as a young person, I was just incredibly engaged. And like, I, I had a lot of life force, a lot of energy, just a lot of like love for life. And um, at a pretty early age, I feel like my father demonstrated to me that the way to live a happy life was to live an engaged life. And so I was super active in so many ways um, through athletics and academia and drama and like chess club and peer mediation and student council, all the things like I literally signed up for it all because I, I just loved being engaged um, and making a contribution and as I got older, I started to be impacted directly by systems of oppression. As a Black, queer, young person who grew up with a single mother and was poor for a period of my life and then came out of that as a middle-class person, like I, I experienced a lot of racism um, in academia. I experienced a lot of homophobia. Uh, in my family, in my church, in my school, in my community, um, sexism. And those systems of oppression left deep wounds that impacted my engagement heavily. So by the time I left high school, I went from being incredibly engaged to being a master escapist. And rather than showing up, I knew how to disappear. And I played the game of escapism for years. I went off to college and I became a party kid in the scene in New York, heavily, like I partied so hard. I eventually started getting paid to party. And really it was my way of running from the pain that I was experiencing and the pain that I was witnessing my family experience or my community experience or other queer folks experience, other black folks experience. Like my way of coping was to try and escape. 
And I, I moved from city to city and found myself eventually in San Francisco, where I fell in love with food. And I started working in the food industry. I started studying nutrition. And as I started to study, I started to learn a lot about the food industry. And this was my first kind of uh, structured awakening. I, I was aware of a lot of things happening, but not in a way that was structured. It was more me processing day-to-day impacts of oppression. But in this class that I took, I was able to learn alongside other folks and connect the impacts of food deserts to the things that I was experiencing in my family. Things like early onset diabetes and um, other like Uh, terminal illnesses that would grow out of what started as some kind of food-related illness that all connected back to our industrial food system and the way that poor people, black and brown poor people especially, are impacted by our industrial system. And so that, that moment in my life caused me to make a radical change. And I left the country and I kind of went uh, on my own, like into the wild moment. I think I had actually watched that movie and decided, you know what? I'm selling everything. I'm packing my backpack up and I am in search of justice and sustainability and like human thriving and well-being. Like I'm, I'm ready for the journey. So that journey led me to working on farms for a while and, um, moving to Canada for a while, trying to escape the U.S., frankly. Um, And then I found myself in a room of peers, everybody in their like mid-20s at what I would later come to learn was a facilitation training. I was very intrigued by a flyer that I saw that was all the key words that I was hungry for around justice, sustainability, and, and just like human thriving. And so I showed up to this workshop and it was led by a group called Generation Waking Up. And their mission at that time was to ignite a generation of young people to bring forth a thriving, just, and sustainable world. And I was like, yo, that's me. Like I, I want to be that young person. And for the first time in my life, I, I felt like I was capable of that. Um, being in this facilitated space where for the first time, I was led through an activity where I I had three minutes to talk uninterrupted about anything that was on my heart. And literally after three minutes uninterrupted of just speaking to folks about what was on my heart, I realized that not one time in my entire life had I ever had that much time to speak so truly and genuinely and honestly without some dude interrupting me to explain some shit or about without someone, someone else kind of cutting in. And that three minutes really changed my life. And I realized the power of these kinds of facilitated spaces to help people reconnect with their voice, uh, reclaim some of their vision and power and, and feel again for me those three minutes of speaking also allowed me to be in my body in a way that I, I hadn't been since I was a kid. So I was, uh, I was really fascinated 
by these tools, these activities, these processes. And I, that became my obsession. And that obsession eventually led me to collaborating with various folks around the country to lead workshops, retreats, programs that would support other young activists, leaders. Uh, I think some of the like sexy words that were used at that time were like change makers. Our mission was to raise awareness and support people in developing the skills they needed to make a difference in their community. And that's really been my passion ever since. And um, I worked with Generation Waking Up for a while. I went on to work with Joanna Macy and get deep in the work that reconnects and start incorporating practices that would not only connect us to our own voice, but the voice of our ancestors and the voice of future beings and the voices and perspectives of non-human beings, of the planet, of the land, of the salmon, of the river, and my approach to facilitation has continued to expand in this way. And I had the great fortune of collaborating with a couple of people from Wildfire just a few years ago, and we just magically meshed. And as I learned more about Wildfire, about their mission, and about this like dope team of facilitators, um, I knew that it was something I wanted to be a part of. And the opportunity to work with groups long-term to support them in shifting culture feels like it is just the next level of um, understanding the, the power of our facilitation work in not only supporting individuals within movements, but supporting groups, which um, I've come to believe now are the key pillar of movements. So... That's how I came to Wildfire, and that's why I'm still here and deeply obsessed. <laughs> uh, BJ and Joshua, thank you so much for sharing. Now, I feel so grateful to have just had the opportunity to soak it all in, and you both spoke really beautifully um, to a couple of issues that I know are close to the hearts of a lot of folks in the Loam community. Uh, Joshua, what you shared about um, self-policing with the right way to be an activist uh, really hit home. Um, and BJ, I was so moved by what you had to offer around how powerful it is to be heard without interruption and, and how necessary it is to practice being in our body as activists and facilitators. So thank you both so much for just sharing. I'm feeling really moved by everything that, that you brought up. And so I, I want to talk now about spirit in the context of wildfire. At wildfire, you talk a lot about cultivating a capacity to surrender. Um, but why now is the practice of surrender so important? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked this question around surrender. Um, surrender is such an ongoing practice. And I'm, I'm just glad that you phrased it as the practice of surrender, because it is, it's not a one-time thing. It, it isn't a, a white flag that we attach to a pole and stick in the ground and that's it. It is a, a practice that goes against every grain that we are like in the flow of right now. It is absolutely against the river <laughs> To surrender and yet at the same time 
it is the river. Surrendering is the river. And I think right now, in this time of so much uncertainty, division that's brought on by fear often, in this time of collapse, and uh, folks feeling a heightened sense of pressure and urgency around their work, around their impact, we have a lot of tension, a lot of contraction, a lot, um, a, a huge desire to control the outcomes and to be reminded that we have little control, I think is the last thing that any of us want to hear. But I think the practice of surrender is not necessarily the same as saying, I give up, or there's nothing I can do, or I'm, I'm powerless. I think it's a way of allowing us to be with all that is, truly. To be present to all that is. And as someone who is, as I said, like comes from a background of being a master escapist, Surrender was the very first thing I had to learn to practice in order to face the reality of the times that we're in. And facing that reality with wide open eyes, with a wide open heart, with a willingness to feel it all requires a kind of surrender that will allow your apathy to soften, that will allow your fear and defense mechanisms to soften. It will allow the coping mechanisms that may be self-destructive to also quiet down a bit and allow the literally just your physical nervous system to be with what is. I, th I think about meditation as one practice of surrender, but I also think about having a day off and not doing not being distracted and being busy, but instead just like being present to the things that are going on and just allowing your body, your heart, your mind to like really take things in. I, I feel like that's also a practice in surrender. And I think one of the outcomes of it is that we have more data, more information to then inform our choices as we move forward. When we surrender and we allow ourselves to be more fully with what is, we then get to make more informed decisions about what next, how to respond, rather than to be overridden by our fear or our anxiety, which I know for me makes me make choices that oftentimes I look back on and, and wish maybe I hadn't done. So we're, we're in a time where our choices matter big time, right? That, that urgency and pressure is there, no doubt. And it might feel like a time not to slow down, but instead to speed up. But there's a power in, in this surrender that allows for us to go slow or mm, show up more fully so we can go further together and further like in our, in our wholeness rather than in our reactivity. So that's why I think surrender is really important right now. I think it makes us more powerful. Oh, I love you so much, BJ. <laughs> I, 
I felt it just so much in my body when you said um, to be with all that is. And the way that surrender allows our apathy to soften, the way that you said that, like, filled me up with the way that you embody wildfires practice of holding multiple truths and navigating the wisdom of the contradictions, um, which I think is another element of spirit that we try to bring in, in our in our work, which is that we often find that activist culture, a lot of the things that hold us back are rooted in deep wisdom, right? That we live in a society that teaches us to submit and confuses submission with surrender. And activists tend to rightly look at that and say, no, we will not submit. You know, we are not the, you know, the way that, um, for example, Dr. Cornell West talks about refusing to become well-adjusted to injustice is something that we lift up. We will not accept that this is the way things need to be. And in leaning into that, we often lose sight of all of the wisdom that BJ just described because we ourselves confuse submission with surrender. And I think that is such a good way of describing what wildfire is about is looking at the ways that sometimes activist culture has overcorrected, you know, and, and looked at the toxicity of our society, overcorrected for it and then generated a new toxicity where we lose our humanity in the process. And that through the practice of, of surrender, we're able to let go of what we actually can't control and keep our eyes on the prize and keep the real big picture in mind which is part of our vision for how social movements can thrive because we really do believe that social movements are our best hope to be navigating this coming period of, of uh, chronic instability and, and crisis and that social movements are one of the ways that we can, as a species, learn our resilience. Wow, thank you for sharing. I just had such a strong reaction to everything that you brought up and I'm already wanting the experience of listening to it again so I can take it in. Yeah, the practice of surrender and how you both spoke to it is so potent and so powerful. So thank you. And I'm so curious to know how, you know, you talk about contradictions and surrender, how these qualities manifest in the kinds of ceremonies and rituals that are serving you and your work right now. Because I can only imagine that. This work of facilitation requires a lot of energy um, and time and commitment and perseverance and patience. And so what are you both doing to feel resourced uh, as you do the work of resourcing others? Yeah, you know, I'm struck. Part of my pause here is that um, I want to be honest that in this week, I feel less resourced than 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 I often do. Um this week, we are uh, navigating the escalation of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, we are seeing a government that is more concerned with the stock markets than of the health and well-being of our people and really ill-equipped to deal with the crisis. Um, we are navigating a political situation in which many of us are a bit heartbroken at, uh, at the way the Democratic Party has chosen to play its hand in the primaries. 
And I've had to pause and actually notice some of my old coping mechanisms started to reassert themselves. I started to lean into the opposite of what BJ was describing. I wasn't slowing down this week. I was, I was over-caffeinating and trying to think my way through problems. And so one of the ways I resource myself is to have checks in, in, at night where I, I have a gratitude prayer um, that, that I um, say every night and I have a journaling practice where, I'm, where I give myself the space to notice, oh, it, it, in what ways is my old coping mechanisms now asserting themselves under pressure? And to give thanks for that of saying, great, now's the time to level up and, and all the, the kinds of personal and organizational practices um, that I lean on when I feel the luxury of time, now I get to lean on when I feel some scarcity. And so what I've been trying to do the last couple of days on a personal level is notice what I'm putting into my body. Um, I actually am eating less only for the sake of uh, being able to listen to my body's wisdom, because one of my coping mechanisms is to overeat out of stress. And in doing so, I drown out the uh, sort of neural network of my stomach that has all of this wisdom. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what makes me disassociate from my body's intuition and stay in my head too much. And so that particular example is just personal to my own, you know, autoimmune disorder kind of architecture. But the way that we do this with groups is that we often facilitate groups right after a crisis moment or sometimes during a crisis moment. And uh, I'll give one example of that. When this summer, the Amazon was on fire and getting more visibility than ever. And one of our partners is an organization called Amazon Watch. And that's actually a program that both BJ and I uh, facilitated together. And um, we got the opportunity to facilitate them through a strategy session and allow them to notice, um, well, what's the opportunity here? You know, um, one of the things our, our, our comrade Adrian Marie Brown says is what you pay attention to grows. And so how do we support this organization to pay attention to the opportunity here? And there was an opportunity for them with a high degree of increased visibility um, where there was more resource and attention going towards their work. And so how were they going to slow down and mindfully choose to spend and use that resource in a moment of crisis uh, rather than just throwing everything against the wall? And it allowed us to support their strategy by building uh, an alignment of their values, not just through the mechanics of a typical strategy process, which we also do. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that we do with groups to support resilience, you know, and um, a lot of what it's rooted in is just gratitude of, are you noticing your uh, pain and scarcity first, or are you noticing your opportunity? And if you're noticing your scarcity and pain first, well, there's wisdom there too. And why is that? And let's, let's feel that and hold that in order to then give space to be able to feel our visions of freedom, increase our sense of interdependence, draw on untapped resources of resilience, keep the big picture in mind. And um, yeah, so we try to, you know, we try to collectivize it with groups and um, as well as build, build our own personal ones. But I'll be honest, this week has been a rough one for me. Mm. Yeah, I think there's, there's a range <clears throat> for me of um, practices 
rituals and ceremonies. Um, on one end of the spectrum, there are the things that are really small moments of um, pleasure or small moments of gratitude, as Joshua was naming, that are pausing and picking up the phone to call my mother and say, just wanted to tell you, you mean the world to me, I love you. That act often isn't something we would define as a ceremony or a ritual, but for me, it is an act that brings me joy brings me gratitude and strengthens my relationship. And I feel like resilience is is a relational thing as well as an individual practice. And so I I love the the small kind of uh tokens that I can add to my bucket that just take a minute and aren't the like hard work <laughs> They are the random FaceTime to my friend where we have a dance party on the phone together. And we just like stop what we're doing and jump around and are silly and laugh. And that just two minutes of joyful connection um, fuels me and reminds me what matters. And... On the other end of the spectrum are deeper rituals and ceremonies and practices that in, in some ways are transformative, that are like big dips into a well of resilience. And those kinds of practices in my life right now look like grief rituals, which I have come to see as almost like joy rituals. It's like clearing out the grief in order to make more space for vitality and joy. And in the middle of that spectrum are like going out dancing or going to like a five rhythms wave, which is like a two hour kind of facilitated dance practice where you get to kind of process life through your body on the dance floor, which for some of us we do anyways when we go out dancing, you know? It's like you had a long week, you ended up with friends, you went out dancing, and there's just that feeling of like, yes, I like, I'm so happy. I just got to move my body. I'm so happy. I'm just laughing with folks, you know? Those times, I think, really fuel our resilience, and I think anything that feeds our joy, strengthens our relationships, allows us to be in our bodies, with our bodies, process life in a way that's not just intellectual. Um, I think those, those for me all really, really strengthen me. But I don't want to like minimize one end of the spectrum as like, these are the smaller things and these are the bigger things. For me, it's actually a lot of the small practices the like making a phone call, the um, deciding I'm not going to listen to the news yet. Instead, I'm going to take a walk and appreciate the birds. Like 
those things, I think, um, make the biggest difference day to day. And so those are the things that bring me pleasure, bring me life, and ultimately add to my resilience as I care for others. I love so much of that. And especially this idea that resilience is relational. Um, Thank you, Joshua and BJ, so, so much for sharing everything that you just shared um, surrounding spirit and the work of wildfire. I really hope that this will be the first of many conversations to come just because there's so much to unpack within the work of wildfire uh, and so much more to explore. So thank you for for sharing your wisdom with us today. I'm feeling really grateful and just humbled in this moment. Thank you so much, Kate. And we're just so grateful to get to meet the Loam community and really grateful for your work too and for the care uh, that you take with it. And it really feels like you're building out a way of being for a new generation through a moment of crisis. And so it's exciting to get to learn with you and from you. And we're just grateful to, to get the opportunity to share a little bit and want to invite um, anyone listening to check out our website at wildfireproject.org. Yes, thank you again for having me, having us, taking this time to spotlight some of our work and uh, for stewarding such an important space for learning and um, for people coming together in community. I echo everything Joshua said. Thank you, Kate. Thank you both again so, so much. And thank you as well to Isaac Silk uh, for editing our podcast. Um, Isaac and Faith Harding for beautiful intro music. And please do check out the Wildfire Project. We'll include more information in our show notes. Um, And hope you all, lone listeners, have a really beautiful day.